0: You are about to listen to a sermon from Common Ground Church in Rapid City, South Dakota. We hope to see you in person. For more information, visit commongroundcma.org. This morning, um, we are going to launch into a whole new series. I can tense, you're just. I can see you're just like tingling with excitement. I can can hear it. It's like static electricity. Yeah. Well, uh, whatever. Um, but uh, yeah, here's what we've talked through so far this year. In case you want a case, you want a little bit of a review. We started in uh, the beginning of this year, talking uh, walking through First John, and uh, First John was a great look at uh, a distortion of uh, a theological distortion, a worship distortion called Gnosticism. And it was a fascinating little look into history. And so we walked through that, uh, from the fall into the winter months. And then, uh, in the early, uh, in early this year, 2018, we started on a series in worship. What is worship biblically? And what have we, what, where have we messed that up? Um, today we are going to. Uh, well, we just got done. We had a, a, a four weeks where we focused on the what, what the Christian Missionary Alliance calls the fourfold gospel, which is just a look at the object of our worship, which is Jesus, our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, Coming King. Um, just a great way to organize kind of uh, our thoughts on who Jesus is. And so, as we sat and thought, as Nick and I talked some things out, and and as I talked with some of the other elders and other people at church, I started realizing, well, where do we need to go from here? What do we need to do and i started thinking okay um what i think we need to do is we need to take a look at okay we've looked at what worship is we looked at the object of worship i want to look at the results of worship what happens to a believer as they worship jesus where does how does this how does this go how does this work how does this move what's the point um, kind of, and I hate, hate to even say it this way, but what's the benefit? What's in it for me? What, what happens to me as I worship Jesus? And so we're going to look at that through, uh, and my slide is wrong. It's actually Second Peter. We're going to be in the book of Second Peter today. So grab a Bible, turn to Second Peter. If you didn't bring a Bible, shame on you It's church. Open up, uh, you can snuggle up with somebody or there's other other Bibles around somewhere. You can find one, but Second Peter's where we're going to be. And today... We are going to uh, kind of open up this book and start this series, and in six weeks we'll wrap this up, and then we're going to actually head into Nehemiah for the summer. Our whole summer is going to be studying the book of Nehemiah, so that one's going to be fun. Um, so anyway, 2 Peter, uh, written by Peter the Apostle of Jesus Christ, the one who you know uh, was the first one to jump out of the boat, so on and so forth. Um, thank you, Christina, for changing my mistake. I appreciate that. Wow, it's really great to have somebody on the computer that fixes your typos. Um, and it's written by. Peter it's written around 63 to 65 AD shortly before his death most likely written from Rome he's sitting in a prison cell facing an execution facing a life a sentence where he's going to uh, undergo execution and he is seeing the end of his life coming And all of a sudden, Peter's faced with, okay, what do I do? What what do I want to leave behind? What do I want to tell this church that I love? What do I want to tell people after everything that I've experienced in life? After meeting God face to face, after denying Him three times, after Him reinstating me three times by telling me to love His people, how do I love these people the best now that I'm gone? And if you've ever been around somebody who's facing the end of their life... Um, or getting closer to it, things start to get different for them. Their perspective changes. They start getting a little weepy sometimes, and start getting a little tender about things that they've never been tender before. Tender about before. And sometimes you realize, like you look at them and you go, "Who are? Who is this person? Who's? Who is this person? I've never met this person before. I know uh, we've talked. Like Sally and I have talked about this with her dad. He's a different person today than he was when he was pastoring or or helping pastor this particular church. Um, he's Yeah, just completely different right now. Because as you near the end of your life, things change a little bit. And this is what Peter's in the middle of. And he starts to write this very fatherly and pastoral letter to his friends, his church, and his family, as he starts and where he starts is he starts at a great place for us. This is one of the reasons I love this book, is Second Peter is So real. The warnings are warnings for right now in this culture. And the encouragements and the admonishments are are things that we struggle with. And he starts in this incredibly beautiful place. He starts at the core of who we are. He starts at our identity. And I don't know if you know this or not, but we live in a world that's really identity confused. I don't know if you see this or not. We live in a world that is so solely focused on individuality and identity and our own personal choice that anything that stands in the way of your God given and constitutionally protected right to choose and right to a happy life is something that is, uh, we would call it oppressive, we would call it like, uh, we would call it destructive, we would call it attacking, we would call it all kinds of things. Because in this culture, in our country, we value highest our individuality individual choice, our individual identity, our individuality. And that idea distorts a lot of things in a lot of different ways because there are basically three places I think you can take identity from. Three places you can take identity from. And we're going to walk through these three places, these three choices. and, uh, And I think it's going to maybe shift our thinking a little bit. See, we live in a world where um, we live in a world where our identity makes a big difference. If you think about uh, people who grow up in in this culture, um, think about middle school. Remind, remind yourself, rewind all the way back into middle school. Some of you, that's a few years. Some of you, that's many, many years. Was middle school awkward? Raise your hand if middle school was awkward for you. And the rest of you are not raising your hand, have like PTSD. And you're like, I don't want to stand out because that's not what you do in middle school, right? Because middle school is this place where you, that's your whole goal is to not stand out. Karina and I had this great conversation yesterday about middle school, didn't we? And he said, middle school is you have to be so concerned about your external appearance that it makes you look as though you're not concerned about your external appearance. You have to spend hours perfecting this look of not caring. (laughs) Isn't that amazing? And you get you get slotted and judged and organized into different groups in middle school and then further into high school based off of that level of care that you take at not caring. Totally insane. Right? Like totally insane. But this is like right there in our fourth, fifth, sixth grade years. We have this culture that rolls, that steamrolls into an uh, into a, an idea about identity, where we have to figure out who we are. In fact, many of you parents start making the same mistake that I've made. We start asking our kids early on, "Hey, what do you want to be when you grow up?" And our schools start saying, "Okay, if you want to be that, we need to start making plans." By fifth grade, you need to start choosing your college and start taking some pre-ACT or some some uh, some ACT tests like right now, fifth graders. And actually, it's a little joking, but we start like our, our daughter Winter. Where's Winter? She's here somewhere. I don't know. And she, when did you start getting ACT tests and people saying do that? About freshman year, right? ACT. Yeah. Yep. Practice AT, ACTs. Yeah. Yeah, about freshman year in in high school. Start figuring out where you're going to college as soon as you hit the ground in high school. The funny thing is, is our brain doesn't even have a prefrontal cortex really fully developed in order to figure out like long-term decisions by that age. And so we're forcing our children to make these decisions about identity, trying to lock them into who they are. And the pressure mounts more and more and more because our society says, you need to figure out who you are and then you need to run after that with all that you've got. And so we have all kinds of people trying to look for identity and they take it from one of three places and one of them is we take it from inside this is one of the predominant things in our younger generation right now it's one of the things that uh, that, that uh, characterizes our younger generation what it means what identity from inside means is we, we turn ourselves inward inward, inward, inward and we start looking inward going okay, what, who do I feel like I am? who do I feel like I am? Or the Christian version. What has God called me to be? Who has God called me to be? What do I feel like God is possibly maybe feeling like He called me to feel like I believe to be? Right? And we start looking inward and inward and inward and inward. Down further and further and further. And here's the funny thing about emotions. Are they solid? Do they stay the same? No. They change with each era of your life. With each era of your life. Now, you can take your identity from inside, or you can also take your identity from outside. And this one's pretty destructive. This is actually the characteristic one of our older generation. I'm looking at all you guys. But our outside, what our outside identity does, or our older generation that takes our identity from the outside, what they do is they start looking to everything around them. They start looking at what they do. They start looking at what their, like their job or their relationships or something else. And what happens is, is you can, this can be incredibly destructive. It can turn into workaholism. You start taking your identity from what you do, saying, no, I am not a human. I'm not, not a human being. I'm human doing. And so here's what happens. Is I I'm a cop, so guess what? I become a cop. That's my identity. I'm a pastor, so everything about me is a pastor, right? Like we introduce ourselves by what we do, not by who we are. Or we take our identity from the outside by looking at a relationship. This is called codependency, right? Like, I can't even be someone without my husband or my children. Soccer moms, okay? Soccer moms. This is what we would... Soccer moms run and run and run and distribute kids everywhere and everywhere and everywhere. And then as soon as the kids graduate, they go, Who am I? Who am I? First Peter starts to... Starts to hint at this, but before we jump in there, what I'd like to do is I, I want to read you something that really floored me this week about this idea of identity from the outside. Something that really because when I hear this, that you're either taking your identity from inside or from outside or something like that, I want to very pridefully go, uh uh not me, uh-uh, I'm taking it from the right place that I get it from Jesus. Uh-huh. And I wanna I, I wanna defend myself, right? But I want you to hear how slippery this is. Here, listen to this. For many Americans, now this this article, what it's talking about is an American culture experiencing an Indian culture from India. And an in Indian culture, India culture, culture, experiencing an American culture. Here, listen to this. For many Americans, first impressions of India have to do with Dirt. Rotting garbage on the roadside, plastic bags draped on shrubs, open festering sewage and excrement on the road, and dirt and dust everywhere. The chaos extends to driving in which trucks, buses, steamrollers, tractors, cars, motor rickshaws, cycles, ox carts, people, cows, water buffaloes, sheep, and stray stray dogs negotiate their way with little apparent concern for the rules of the road. Those of us who went to the Philippines, you know exactly what that feels like. When there's no rules, there's lines. But those are not lines. Those are just... Markings. The result is chaos The sense that life has no order to it That it is out of control and dirty Indians have their first impressions of America And Americans as well They are awed by the public cleanliness Lawns are manicured Buildings are freshly painted Streets are clean And sewers are hidden underground People drive in polished, dent-free cars They observe well-marked lanes Stop at stoplights And wait for oncoming traffic to pass before turning Now, you're all like, uh-huh, what's up? America's clean. India's dirty. <laughs> Let's preach it, Pastor. Okay. Now, Indians are shocked, however, at Americans' personal filthiness. In public school stores, movie theaters, and buses, they wear old, dirty, torn jeans. Very short shorts that cover nothing. T-shirts covered with ads and unpolished, gaudy tennis shoes. These appear to be beggar's clothes. Women wear the same drab dress as men. They keep their shoes on when they enter their houses and even in churches where they worship in the presence of God Almighty. It's clear that they can afford more respectful dress, so why do they take better care of their streets, yards, and cars than they do themselves? Americans eat with forks and spoons that have been in other people's mouths. They do not wash their hands before eating with their fingers. They use their right hands in toilets and use paper to clean themselves. Indians eat with their fingers, which have not been in other people's mouths, and use only the right hand because the left is kept for dirty activities. Americans eat meat, even beef, which both defiles them and gives them a strong body odor that vegetarians can smell. And they touch each other in greeting, and hence are polluted by the more ritually impure that they, than they by those who are more ritually impure than they. After their initial shock of visiting India, Americans must stop and take a deeper look at what they are experiencing. They encounter a paradox more than any other culture. Indian culture is based on deep beliefs in purity and pollution, which touch every area of life. India may have a reputation for its public filth, but Indians are obsessive about personal cleanliness, whereas Americans are obsessed with public cleanliness and obsessed with personal filth. You see what I mean about culture from the outside? You see what I mean about culture from the outside? Our identity from the outside? We often, as very prideful Americans, will go, wow, look at how clean and awesome our country is, especially when we go to a dirty one, and then all of a sudden you look and you go, oh, wait, except for the fact that I care very little about my personal filth. And think about churches. Man, churches, Let me don't even get me started, right? Like, we spend... Billions of dollars on giant, shiny, ornate, beautiful, traditional, or not so traditional, or things with awesome lights and you know, great smoke machines. We spend billions of dollars on that stuff because we're concerned with the external appearance, but the church on the inside is Filthy. filthy. We as Americans are the number one purchasers of pornography worldwide that goes for american christians and non-christians alike because our culture our identity has been taken from outside we've become engrossed with public cleanliness and could care less about our personal filthiness this is where first peter steps in this is where first peter step, or excuse me second peter thank you second peter steps in man Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to walk through about 15 verses here, and then I'm just going to highlight a few things about it and, uh, and leave you to study this on your own. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of God and Savior, and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours, grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. It's a great, great intro. Verse 3. His, God's, divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. And if you possess these qualities in increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure for if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So I will remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have, I think it's right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside side as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me and I will make every effort to see that after my departure you will always be able to remember these things first Peter doesn't talk or excuse me second Peter, Peter does not talk about, he's not first or second he's just Peter, Peter does not talk about identity from inside, he's not saying hey I want you to just look for the light and the love that God has placed inside of you, just look for the stuff that God's placed inside of you and then just, just just um, just Just let that out, just look for the stuff inside and, and increase that no he doesn 't say that, and he doesn 't also just say, "Look for the people around you, the things around you, build a church culture, build a culture, or whatever. He says we need to find identity in a very pragmatically practically incredibly real way from god almighty on high so this is not identity from outside or identity from inside this is identity that comes from on high and it's a little bit different because it is not simply an identity that we take but it is an identity that is formed inside of us given to us and then works its way out of us this is an identity that is holistic and it's what we will call what paul calls in the Corinthian letters to the corinthians this is what we call the new creation the old is gone the new has come the old is dead the new is here we are a new creation so what does that even look like well he starts off in verse 3 saying simply this god has granted us all things for life and godliness all things in in your esv would be all things pertaining to life and godliness and the idea here is god has given you life Life. And that's not just life like whimsically like, oh man he gives me the good life. Or he gives me the bad life or the son. No, he gives you everything you need for life. He has, and in Ephesians, it would say it this way, that you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, walking in the death that you once walked in. And now he says, you've been given life. You've been made into life. And so God has granted you first and foremost life. He's given you an identity by recreating you and I as we give our life to Jesus Christ. And I can only tell you this by personal experience. I mean, I can tell you this from the Bible, but I can also tell you from personal experience that this is the primary change. I went from and some of you went from being a person so self-focused and so selfish and so self-identifying that I was destroying everyone around me as I was using them and abusing them for my own good pleasure and my own power. And Jesus changed something inside of me. It's not something that I did. It's something that was done to me and it snapped and everything changed and everything changed. That is what God means when he says he's granted us life. His spirit comes to dwell inside of us and the old self is dead and gone and the new self becomes alive. And then he says, this comes through, through our knowledge of him through our knowledge of Him. So what Peter's saying here is, as we know Jesus, as we have an intimate relationship, notice it doesn't say through our knowledge about Him, or through our knowledge in Him, or through, sorry, through our knowledge of Him, okay? This is not about just simply devouring theology manuals, and the more that you know about Jesus, the better you're going to be. This isn't just about simply sitting down every day and making sure that you read through your Bible in a year, although that's a fantastic thing, but it's not just about the more that you know. This idea of knowledge is about an Intimacy. So the more that you are intimate with Jesus Christ, the deeper you go in relationship with Him, the further that you step with Him, the more that you walk with Him, and the more that you see Him, what will happen is, through that knowledge of Him, you will be granted life. You see that? You, can revert, you, you actually have to, through the language, be forced to reverse engineer this. He's granted us all things for life through our knowledge of Him. And so that relationship that starts off where Jesus sends His Holy Spirit to you and something snaps into place and there's a relationship that's there, that relationship is that which brings you life. So my question in the middle of this is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Him? Have you been satisfied with just knowing about Him? Not to detract from what Susie said, but we we have to have Bible studies. We have them like Wednesday night. We're going to have some more here going on. Bible study is fantastic. But if you never do anything with that Bible study that pushes you deeper into a fundamental relationship with Jesus Christ, then that Bible study is all for naught because this is all about knowing Him, not about knowing about Him. We need to know Him. And as we know Him, He grants us all things for life. The flip side of this is, and this is the thing, the flip side of this is, if we don't know Jesus Christ, if we've never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, if we've never come to that point where where we intimately know Jesus and something has fundamentally changed about us that's never happened, the Bible will tell you that what happens is you are walking around in death. And death is what you are seeing happen all around you. Death of relationships. Death of your own mortal body and your own, and your own, your own uh, sustenance. Death of all kinds of things. Death of your emotions. Death of everything. Jesus Christ, apart from Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. And what Paul will tell us is that before Jesus Christ, we are walking dead. We are walking dead. But Peter doesn't stop here. Peter continues and he says, this all happens by what?" And he says, by which? So His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us to be His own glory and goodness. Through these or by these things, He has given us His very great and precious promises. Through this, He's given us His very great and precious promises. So this relationship that then gives us life becomes His very great and precious promises. It becomes an incredible promise for what that life holds and what that life has to offer. It means a life with meaning, a life with purpose, a life with mission, a life with suffering for that purpose, a life filled with people, a life filled with redemption, a life filled with healing, a life filled with being rebroken in order to be rehealed once again. A life that is a struggle, but it's a victory in the struggle to struggle to a victory. This is what life looks like, and that is God's promise to us that He will not leave us, He will not forsake us, and as Allie went down on this water, that is what she is admitting that I'm taking on these very great and precious promises that I'm trusting that the Lord Jesus as I follow Him will do something incredible in me and will change me into something that is more like Him. That is what a relationship with Jesus does. It's a life that swims upstream through this world, but a life that reveals the Holy Spirit's powerful work in your life as you swim upstream. And then he wraps up here in this little, just this little section. He says that we have these very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And he's saying so that through them you may participate in godliness, like you may participate in the thing that God has started in you, the promise of the Holy Spirit inside of us is that once and for all, you are no longer slaves to sin. You don't have to, you don't have to do sin anymore. That bondage is broken and now no longer are you forced to fall over and over and over again. But for the first time ever, we're awakened and we struggle against the battle of sin and lifelessness in our own life. <laughs> See, what happens is God gives you a desire to be more like him he plants His Holy Spirit in you, you have a desire to be more like Him that is an insatiable fire. And as you walk forward in that, even as you fall in that, you will get up going, I can't stop now. I have to keep moving forward because that desire to be more like Jesus is too powerful. Doesn't mean a life of perfection, please don't hear that. It really does not mean a life of perfection, but it means a life of a brutal battle. A brutal battle that is battling out sin in our lives. And the funny thing is, is then he says it's, you get to participate in godliness. What did the first part say? That he's granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so this whole little passage becomes this cyclical deal, where all of a sudden what's happening is, we are given all things for life and godliness. And, and we, we're given this through the knowledge of him and then through this he gives us his promises which allow us to partake in the divine nature, which then pushes deeper in a relationship with him, which then gives us more life, which then pushes us deeper into the divine nature, which then gives us more love and relationship with him and deeper life. And this cycle this cyclical thing happens, and this is what we would call the progress of sanctification, if you would like a big word of it, progress of sanctification. But this is what it is. It's a progressive moment of being cut again and again and again, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. If that article I read initially is true, That Americans, including Christians, are really concerned with our public cleanliness and our private filth. What has gone wrong? What has gone wrong? Either we have never had a relationship with Jesus Christ, or we've been given the wrong Jesus to have a relationship with, or we never realize that Jesus actually gives us life that then we, get, we get to participate in. Or maybe we've never, like like Allie just said, maybe we've been sitting there just trying to figure out what to do next until God says, hey, obey, be baptized, walk forward. we never even consider those things because we're all like, well, it doesn't matter my salvation because my individual, individual salvation is individually really good. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's a public declaration of incredible amounts of obedience. This whole thing sets us on a new trajectory where our life looks less and less like our own. And if this country, including the church in this country, looks... More and more and more like the world, we're spending so much more time trying to prove how cool we are and forgetting about how amazing Jesus is. If we're spending that much time doing that type of stuff, then maybe something fundamentally has broken in our own personal life. And I don't know what it is, but I think it might be we've put our trust in the wrong Jesus. As Peter finishes up this line of thinking, he then says, "It is for this reason. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and goodness, knowledge and knowledge, self control and self control, perseverance and the perseverance, godliness and the godliness, brotherly kindness and a brotherly kindness, love." And he's re encompassing the fruit of the spirit that's given to you, and, and he's saying, "Make every effort to to put these things into your life." And then he says that for if you possess these qualities in the increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in. One What? Your knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Back to that relationship again. Back to that relationship again. My thinking is that somewhere along the line, something got broken. And part of it, I think, is we need to continue. We need to stop continually looking in trying to find our identity in Jesus by the way that we feel or the feelings that we feel when we're in worship and our hands are raised and all that stuff, we need to stop looking inward going, okay, do I feel close to Jesus? But we also need to stop looking outward going, okay, am I doing all the right things to get me closer to Jesus? We need to start looking to Jesus. Just looking to Jesus, saying, Jesus, give me more of you, that's all. Just give me more of you. Meet me. Come face to face with me. Show me yourself. Show me your glory. And I will obey and I will follow and I will step. So I ask that perhaps today, perhaps today will be a new day for you. Perhaps today is a day where you get to stop looking in for your identity. You get to stop looking inward towards your feelings of how close you are to Jesus. Or perhaps today is a day you get to stop looking at your outward expressions going, I've been to church, I go to Bible study, I go to Bible study seven times a week. I go to, I go to all of these support groups for my Bible study, and I have a, uh, an, 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 an AA group that tells me how to steer clear of my addictions from Bible study. I mean, I have all these things that are keeping me healthy, and I'm doing all this stuff. Maybe we get to look away from that and just look to Jesus. Maybe today is the first day you get to say, Lord, I need a relationship with You because I've learned some things about You and what I've learned I don't like. Or what I've learned I'm I'm okay with, but it's not really impactful, but I've never known You. And that's simply for you to answer. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know Him in the pit of your soul? And if you do not know Him in the pit of your soul, you can. He's there. He's available. He's there for you to pray. (laughs) The best thing, best prayer in the world is, Jesus, help me. That's it. Help me know you. Help me know you more and more. Anne Lamott, who is, uh, in my opinion, not a great author, but she's, you know, an author, said that, uh, she's got at least one quotable thing. She says uh, that the two most prayed prayers in her life are, help me, help me, help me, and thank you, thank you, thank you. And that's actually part of a relationship, Right? Help me and thank you. Lord Jesus, we come before you. I don't want to pretend, Lord, to just come before you because it's what we do in church. Lord, I come, I come before you, the God of the universe who came into this earth, who gave his life up, who sacrificed himself, who was broken for me, who was His blood was poured out for me and who was buried for me and then raised in newness of life to give that to me. And Lord, I ask that you would just simply do that, that you'd give us life, that you'd give my friends here life, that you'd give our family here life, and that you would give us not only just a little bit of life or the life that we thought we wanted, but so much, just an eternal measure of the life that we never knew we always needed. Lord, that You would pour Your Spirit into us and that You would grant us knowledge of You so that we can see see this salvation that You've given us. We can see this life and then follow along with Your very great and precious promises. Lord Jesus, I admit that far too many times I've looked inward, snapping selfies and trying to shout out to the world who I am. And I have also admit that I've far too long looked outside saying, here's what I do for you, here's what I do for you, here's what I do for you. But I far too often forgot to just be with you. To just be with you. So I pray that you'd meet with us this morning. If there are those who are here who've never actually done this, who've never built a relationship with you, that they would be cut to the core by the Spirit and be guided and led to 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 truth, to who you are. That they would give their lives over. Because there are lives that depend on it. Ours in particular. We love you and we give you this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. Please join us again at Common Ground Church.